And I'm not saying it's a cause for concern because people should care about those who don't have as much. But I do think something happens to the fabric of society when there's an imbalance between those who have and those who have not. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. My heart and Justin's heart is definitely going out to everyone out there in our community, and we have a super special episode for you guys today, but let's check in with the co-host, Justin, and see how he's doing today. What's up, man? Hey, man, doing good. You know, this is generally the part of the episode where we kind of talk about what we've been up to the last uh, few days and i mean you know I, I just was driving across the united states getting back from mississippi up to boston but really what i kind of want to talk about is what we decided to do here you know we had a completely different episode that was supposed to be coming out this week we recorded this episode with kirsten and julian not that long ago so it was not meant to come out for probably two more months but you know me and you got to chatting and we decided the best thing to do was to kind of postpone the episode that was going to come out this week move this episode, you know, up in the schedule. And so we put in some extra hours, but we think it's totally worth it. And we think it's the right thing to do. And we think it's the the right time for this kind of episode to come out. And so, yeah, I'm just really excited about this episode today. But Justin, before we move any farther, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Do you want to learn more about the future of prop tech? And for those like me who are not sure exactly what prop tech is, basically it's using technology to give you advantages as a real estate investor. PropTech Conference for a Cause will be hosted by Igloo Home on June 18th. As a global smart lock company, Igloo Home is building the future of smart access for homeowners and property managers worldwide. With a line of smart deadbolts, key boxes, and padlocks, you can be sure that there's a way to keep your property secure. Hear from the people and businesses that are shaping the future of real estate, property management, and urbanization. All ticket fees from this event will be donated to Team Rubicon in support of their COVID-19 relief efforts. The event will have things like expert panel discussions, expo, and networking. And topics will include things like how businesses are adapting, the acceleration of prop tech adoption, looking at growth opportunities, smart city innovations, and a ton of more other cool stuff. So if you want to check out this awesome event and you're a real estate investor looking to get more involved in the prop tech space, taking your real estate investments to the next level, you can sign up at thefyshow.com slash tech. That's thefyshow.com slash T-E-C-H tech. And so today we have Julian and Kirsten on from Rich and Regular. And I've been friends with them for a couple of years now. I actually heard them speak down at Camp Fi Southeast in Florida, and they just had the most amazing speech. Honestly, Everyone was, some people were in tears, some people stand, were standing up giving a standing ovation, and because they were bringing so many of these issues to light that we don't talk about. Justin and I, as white dudes, we don't see this systemic oppression and things that the black community faces every single day, every single week, and this speech that they gave just really opened my eyes to it and showed me that, hey, even though I'm not getting directly affected by this, I need to stand up, I have a voice. That's why Justin and I, like he was just saying, we don't want to be silent on this, We want to be activists. We want to be on top of this. So we're going to talk about their backstory, how they got involved in personal finance. We're going to talk about some of the systemic issues that we're facing in America today and a bunch of other awesome stuff. But I'm not going to take away the whole episode. Take it away, Julian and Kirsten. Wow. That is the first time anyone's ever asked me to do that. And I'm going to try my best to be brief, but 
I would say one of the biggest things that differentiate me or my experience from Kirsten's is I grew up with, I guess, what later became defined as a scarcity mindset. I also grew up in what was soon to be considered the crack era, <laughs> in which you know I can, I guess, laugh about now. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing um, funny about crack. Yeah. No, there isn't. Crack is not good. <laughs> it's whack. Crack is whack. But no, I grew up also in 1980s Brooklyn. I'm aging myself. And so it was a really tough time. Again, without perspective, you don't have anything to compare it to. And so for me, money was something that I knew existed on television. It was something that I knew existed from the roof of my building because I could see Manhattan in the distance. But it was not something that I saw in real life. It might as well have been a, a leprechaun in my world. So I knew well, I was going to say, well, I knew it existed because leprechauns do exist, right? But um, no, I just, I just, it, it wasn't around. I didn't see it. No one around me had it. And so I had no reason to believe that I could ever be rich. So my background was the complete opposite of that. I suppose I was growing up in the crack era, but there wasn't a whole lot of crack in the suburbs of Atlanta. You don't have no crack? <laughs> we had no crack in our Def- neighborhood. <laughs> you definitely had. We probably crack. did have a little bit of crack, but not. You did. You grew up in the, in the suburbs of Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Money was something that I just, I didn't have to think about a lot because everything, we weren't like extremely wealthy or, you know, millionaires or anything like that. It was just we were comfortable, I guess. There wasn't a time where, you know, we went without. I've always lived in a house. I've never lived in an apartment growing up. I had two working parents. And if their career trajectory was a stock, it would be a blue chip. My dad continued to receive promotions. He was well-liked. He was recognized in professional organizations. And so I just had the model of two working parents with upward trajectories throughout life. So, Julian, I would have to say that I probably resonate more with your background as far as that scarcity mindset growing up in a lower income environment, although it was a long way from New York down in Mississippi. So it's definitely different. But I, I get where you're coming from, I think. And I'm just curious because, you know, it's always fascinating to me when people kind of do break out of that environment and really make something of themselves and do make these huge accomplishments. Do you have any like one moment that you can look back on and say, you know, if it wasn't for that, I probably wouldn't have got out? I have one moment, but I can't really say it without really giving a lot of credit to mentors. And so at every stage of my life, I always had a mentor or someone who was willing to invest just a little bit more in making sure that I did the right thing and didn't fall off the tracks like a lot of my friends did. And when I say every stage, I mean, it could have been a program that I was a part of or even a formal curriculum, even all the way through, you know, the early stages of my professional career, I've always had that one person that was a counselor in a way that when I gave them my dreams, they could tell that it just wasn't big enough for what they believed I could do. And so they would say something to me to say, no, you're not done yet. Keep going. Because I was ready to just go and get a job and be fine. But they kept pushing me to do further. But I didn't really realize the span of possibilities in life until 2005. I was graduating from Georgia State University. I had finished a study abroad program. We spent some time in Western Europe, specifically France, Germany, and Switzerland. It was the first time I'd ever been to Europe. I felt like 
a fish out of water, but I was with 20 other people and, and we had partnered with another school. But the fact that I went from rejecting the idea that I could even go to this trip because I couldn't afford it to applying for scholarships and getting more money than I actually needed to actually go and then actually being able to take the time off from my job and go is what really changed my world. Because when I saw that, I just realized how big the world was. And it was the first time in my life that I had ever seen things in real life that I'd only ever seen in a textbook. And so it it just, it changed my perspective. And from there, I've been addicted to just wanting to see and do more and spend as much time traveling and just continuing to push the boundaries. And so I kind of want to talk about the story that I heard. I'm not remembering exactly what interview it was in, but you guys had been together for a while. I think you're on your honeymoon and it seems like you hadn't been talking about finances or investments or anything like that beforehand. And Kirsten does something on this honeymoon, Julian, and you figure it out. And you say that if you had known that she was doing this, that you might have not even been with her. Could you talk about this, that whole story? Sure. It's a great story. <laughs> um, it's a nice romantic story. So I will correct you. It wasn't our honeymoon. Okay. I'm not that much of a jackass. <laughs> it's actually a little worse. So it was uh, right after we met. I mean, we met, you know, sparks flew Things were were great. We were dating. We were eating out. We were doing all kinds of things. And then we said, screw it. Let's take an international vacation. And so we ended up going to Panama. And when we went to Panama, we had a pretty good time. We came back. And what I consider to be normal is when you come back from a vacation, it's like button down. We got to start, you know, sort of assessing the damages as all the charges are coming in, right? Because we were not budgeting while we were there. We were mindful of how much we could spend. But you know, we saw all these charges and then like the supplemental, you know, international fee charge on the credit card. You know how it just makes everything <laughs> way more expensive. Oh, yeah. So you're saying we, but we we were not like sharing accounts. He paid for his things and I paid for my things. Yeah. Like it was we split the trip. In other words, I was actually paying yeah, attention to my credit. I, I did not care at the time. And she was not. And Yolo. so. Right. <laughs> and so what happened was a few weeks went by and I was really just focused on paying off the trip, like making sure that, you know, I can get back to zero so that I can get back to normal the following month. And she was all about the YOLO life and was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm not slowing down. I know we just came back from a vacation, but let's go out to eat tomorrow. And I was like, no, are you crazy? Like, no, this is, this is beans and rice time. You know, we just had a great time. Now it's time to eat sandwiches until we can make up for the damage that we did. And we got into a little bit of a heated conversation. It forced a very early conversation about money. And that's when I uttered those horrible words that I would not have dated her if I knew she had credit card debt. So, yeah. <laughs> and then we lived happily ever after, pretty much. So, Kirsten, I'm just guessing, but I'm assuming that maybe some of that had to do with, you know, having a little bit more comfortable upbringing, giving you this feeling that it was okay to do these things. I don't know. That's what I'm kind of hoping to ask is, where do you think that came from? The fact that you weren't as concerned about it and then... How did that change as you and Julian, you know, started forming your relationship and you kind of, you got some insight to what that scarcity mindset does look like and how did that influence the way you looked at things? Yeah, I, I think my mindset at the time was there's more where that came from. And so I just felt like I wasn't naive enough to think that money grew on trees, but I did think that there was enough money out there to do all the things that I wanted to do without ever worrying about where it was coming from. 
because as my career was growing, credit cards were increasing my limits, my salary was raising. And so there was always a way to find, you know, to figure out how to get the swipe through. And I wasn't really worried about like paying down the balance. It was like, did that swipe clear? Then I guess I can afford it. (laughs) And so I think that stemmed from me starting businesses very early in life. So there's not like a period in my early adolescence where I wasn't earning a paycheck or some form of money. I started my first business when I was 13 and from 13 all the way up till, you know, two months ago when I quit my job, I have always earned money, whether it's babysitting, cat sitting, making t-shirts, selling shoes, whatever it is, I'm always making money. And so I just never really worried about the income part of the equation. And what Julian shared with me, what he, what he taught me over time was that I should be worried about the income part of the equation because I was dependent on somebody else to give me that income. It wasn't income that I was truly generating on my own. It wasn't through ownership or through some sort of asset. It was through you know selling my time. And that was a game that wasn't always going to be available to me. So Julian, I kind of want to spin this back to you. And I know both you guys are now full-time entrepreneurs, rich and regularing every single day. But can you walk us through, it doesn't have to be a, you know, year by year job description of your entire career, but how have your corporate roles kind of helped you or made you realize things about becoming an entrepreneur? Like what lessons have you taken from those corporate roles or just your career that you've translated into entrepreneurship? Man, that's a great question. So I'm a nerd and I think about business and entrepreneurship obsessively. So literally, I I, I do. I, I, I will admit it. But what I've come to realize is, especially in today's world and today's economy, to answer your question, I think marketing is no longer or should not be considered a business skill. I think it, it should be considered a life skill. I don't think that people, regular Joes and Janes, understand the difference between information or when they're being marketed to, or even news and when they're being marketed to. And the reason for that is because marketers like me and some of the people that I used to work with and a lot of the people in Silicon Valley almost have, I mean, they have more data than they even know what to do with. And so it becomes a lot easier for them to anticipate or guess and as a result, sell products to consumers or even make them desire things that they don't really want. And so I graduated with an MBA in marketing in 2008. I've worked in marketing roles for large global organizations, for large global brands. I've sat in some of the most boring and just, you know, (laughs) but also some exciting meetings at a time where we're really at the cutting edge of brand marketing and consumer marketing and digital marketing and social. And so as you start to converge all of those things, you can really paint a really brilliant picture of the world and your target consumer. And so for me, I grew tired of not actually feeling like the person that I was describing on my LinkedIn page. And I knew that I needed to step out on my own if I wanted to use every part of my brain. And so for me, that was a motivating factor for why I certainly move into entrepreneurship as opposed to the traditional corporate route. So speaking of marketing, the name you guys use, Rich and Regular, for the audience listening, where does that come from? Like, what's some of the meaning behind it? What are you trying to portray with that? Yeah, it's a little bit of a play on Rich and Famous, which we are not. (laughs) But when you tend to think of Black wealth, when you think of Black people who are wealthy, it's hard to name someone who isn't. 
there's a lot of examples in other communities of dentists and entrepreneurs and plumbers who have acquired massive amounts of wealth without being exceptional or extraordinary. And when we were thinking about the Black community and what examples we have in terms of wealth building, it was all these extraordinary people. It was LeBron James, Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama. And those are like once in a lifetime people. And when we thought about how we wanted to acquire our wealth and the life that we wanted to live, we really just wanted to be regular people. We didn't want to be so far removed from our families and from our community and from our friends, from the things that we like doing, like going into Target without needing a disguise. Like we just, we wanted to be regular people, but we also wanted to be very, very comfortable. And so that's kind of where the, the name stems from. It's it's an aspirational term for us to just be rich and regular. <laughs> I will also say I was inspired by the movie Coming to America. There's a scene, there's a scene where Sexual Chocolate is, is singing on the stage. You know, it's awful. in the crowd is like, that's good. <laughs> that boy's good. That's good. <laughs> and then the guy next to him says, good and terrible. And I just like that. <laughs> it's stupid, but it's it just kind of made, you know, I like the the play of the two. Uh, because to Kirsten's point, right, especially in our world, and by that I mean Black America, when we think about rich, it is a story of extremes. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing in between. You can't just be you know, a local guy that's doing well, like it's like, no, you're, you're just not considered rich. And so we really wanted to challenge people to really redefine what that term means. And I think if they can identify with that term a little bit more, it might be easier for them to actually aspire to becoming it. Yeah. We love when people say, you're not even that rich. And it's like, well, great. <laughs> then you do it. <laughs> so right. you can be that not rich either. <laughs> right. I remember back in was it 2019? I think I heard you talk at Camp Fi Southeast in Florida. And I was just so moved by your talk. And it, honestly, it's just something I can't relate to, but it's such a glaring problem and something that people don't see. I've heard so many people very naively say like, oh, everyone has the same opportunity and you know, your past doesn't really define you and all these other things. Could you talk about some of those wealth and wage gaps that black Americans face that maybe people don't even realize? Because some of those numbers you guys were talking about and just some of the things that Black Americans do face and that doesn't get talked about was absolutely mind boggling to me. Yeah. You know what I really liked about that conversation is that we were able to like weave in humor because it's such a heavy conversation. Like nobody wants to wake up and feel terrible, you know, talking about how people have been systemically oppressed. Right. But we can't solve a problem that we don't acknowledge. And so what we were challenged with. And again, I remember talking about this. We see this as a marketing problem. Let's figure out funnier ways, more attractive ways, more engaging ways to have a healthy dialogue about this so that people can sort of actually try to solve it. But some of the more glaring issues, as I'm thinking back to that was, and I think it was a Washington Post article that was specifically highlighting the experience of Black Americans in the city of Boston. They did a study and they identified that the median net worth for Black Bostonians was $8.00. So basically, Chipotle with a side of guac, right? That's, <laughs> Maybe. That's it. You do that and you're at zero. Some of the other things, and, and, and the numbers sort of, obviously, this is a, you know looking at the United States as a whole. The last time I checked, the median wealth of a Black family was somewhere around $11,000. I've seen some as high as seventeen, And that's for a variety of reasons, whereas 
average white family was about 10 to 15 X that. And so when you think about also just our economy and all of these other things, I don't want to get into a political conversation, but all of these other forces that are at play that are really widening that gap, it should be a cause for concern. Uh, and to me, that's just a societal issue. And I'm not saying it's a cause for concern because people should care about those who don't have as much. But I do think something happens to the fabric of society when there's an imbalance between those who have and those who have not. You can pretty much bet that there's going to be some violence going on, Mm -hmm. that there's going to be some crime going on, because no one's going to continue to sit back and watch other people get more and more and more when they are getting less and less. And even when we think about the environment that we're in now, given the pandemic and the job losses and the sectors that are being impacted the heaviest, a lot of those are impacting Black and brown people. And so this is also making it a lot worse. And so those were some of the things that we spoke about then. We've actually not, I've not done a lot of research recently. Admittedly, it's just a little depressing. But the last stat I will give is one from a more recent study, which was looking at the trajectory of wealth. And I actually believe that this is going to have to be updated because this was pre-pandemic. But what the report showed was that by 2053, the median net worth of African-Americans in the country is slated to be zero. And so that's not looking at any particular city. It's just looking at the the country as a whole. But again, that was pre-pandemic. And I could say without question that that will probably be moved up 15 to 20 years. And so within our lifetimes, reasonably, we will continue to see the sort of ridiculous, extreme wealth inequality that we've only, I think, as Americans ever seen abroad, right? And so that's will become a reality here in developed countries and in developed cities. And I just think that that's a cause for concern. So one question I'd like to ask, and this can go to, to either one of you that want to answer, is we're all the time trying to give tangible things for our listeners that they can do. And I know that this subject matter, you know, when we look at it, it's easy to think, well, it's someone else's problem. It's a problem too big for me to impact. Is there anything that on an individual level that people listening could do, whether it be helping educate or actually helping solve this problem? Yeah, there's a lot of things. The first one would be to support Black businesses. So for a lot of us, entrepreneurship is one way to close that gap because it removes the middleman who determines that your earnings are a flat rate in the form of a salary. There's no cap on how much you can earn when you start your own business. And so for every product that exists in a big box retailer, there is probably some Black artisan or crafter or a restaurant in town that is serving the exact same dish or creating the exact same product. And just by that simple vote of your dollar, it allows us to start to close that gap on an individual level, which then can then lead into a more institutional or public policy level. I'm glad you said that. Obviously, we talk about this a lot, but that is... To me, I think the very first thing that we can do is to just make a more concerted effort to support Black-owned businesses, because it's not just to make that one business successful. You guys know as business owners, you know, you're, you're cutting checks for other people, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're supporting families, you're supporting communities, and in some cases, you're supporting other businesses who are offering services and such for you to help grow your own. And so I'm a huge fan of entrepreneurship, as, as I said, where we both are. 
And one of the things, not to pivot the conversation, but one of the things that we would like to see more of in the FIRE community are conversations about entrepreneurship as a lever to helping to build wealth. I think I think we've co- we've covered the gamut of investing strategies. And side hustles. And side hustles <laughs> at this point. I'd like to see more of us talking about how to build businesses and not even businesses that you need to assign to for the rest of your life. I mean, it could be a business that you start or business that you purchase or business that you scale or something like that. But business skills, entrepreneurial skills as a whole, I think is something that's lacking, not just in the fire community, just but in general. But I'd like to see that because, you know, if you've studied wealth and wealth building, you see a significant percentage of the people who are able to amass incredible wealth have done so through business. And so it would be silly of us to focus so heavily on investing and not on how to build things of your own that you have the ability to scale. So this is actually a perfect transition. I know, Julian, you were saying, oh, I didn't mean to change the conversation course. But so, Kirsten, I know you left your corporate job back in February, if I'm not mistaken. And one of the reasons that you named, one of the biggest reasons, actually, which I found really interesting was because I can. And I thought that was just such a powerful idea and a powerful ideology that you adopted. Can you talk about what that statement means and why that's the reason you left your corporate job? Yeah, (laughs) it's a great question. I think for me, because I can is a... That's a great t-shirt. What, because I can? I'm going to write that down. Didn't Barack Obama already... What was the, what was his slogan? Yes, we can. Yes, yes we can. Yes, I can. <laughs> oh, because I can. Because okay. I can. Because I can. C-U-Z. <laughs> anyway, let me answer the question. For me, it was a realization that I had a choice that was available to me that wasn't there before, or at least that I thought wasn't there before. I didn't think you could just quit jobs because you didn't want to be there anymore. <laughs> like, I thought you always needed to be working or you needed a bulletproof financial plan, or you needed some sort of existential crisis or an emergency like a sick parent or, you know, a toxic boss or just something that was more extreme than the fact that it's an option. And I think in writing that post and in running down all of the good reasons that I could have assigned to the decision, the one that stood out the most to me and the one that I felt that felt most authentic to the point of life that I'm at is that it's an option for me. And that's kind of a reminder as to why we pursue this financial independence journey, because as we go through life and as we hit different milestones, there will be things that become options to us that we don't even know are options right now, where it's like, I didn't know I could, I'm going to make something up, fly a private jet somewhere, or I didn't know I could have three homes where I live in different seasons. I mean, this is obviously fat fire, which is a whole different <laughs> whole different spectrum of FI. But there are just things that show up in little and big ways every day that become options the closer you get to being financially independent. And this idea of leaving a job and getting income from another source was one that just like, you know, finally came to me and it was like, oh, what the hell am I waiting for? (laughs) Like our original plan was to wait a whole another year, year and a half before I quit, get a little bit closer to the, to the number, which, you know, in hindsight, which of course is 2020, that would have been a terrible plan because here we are two months later. And it's like that year would have stretched out to two and a half years or three and a half years because of the dips in the market. You know, we've always said that we have a number and we use that as a guideline, but 
to us, financial independence is really stemming from a feeling of freedom, a feeling of how many options and where we're confident in our lifestyle. And so being able to leave was just, you know, one example of recognizing that. So Julian, we've talked a lot about, you know, starting our own businesses, starting your own businesses and what Kirsten just talked about where it stepped away, even though the market dropped and that could have added a couple more years to it. I'm just thinking through like, what advice would you have to people who hear that message? Like, Hey, you should be thinking about starting your own business, but just got really freaked out by what just happened. Seeing all these businesses get shut down and thinking about how much they wish they had that safety blanket of a corporate job. Not to ramble on too much. So what, what, is, what is some of that advice that you would give to somebody who is wanting to think about building a business, but they're terrified of what they just saw? I think they need to change their scenery. You need to surround yourself with people who aren't afraid of doing the things that you're thinking about, which for entrepreneurs is a huge step. Because if you've got a comfortable, cushy corporate job, you're likely surrounded by other people who have the same thing. You likely spend a lot of time climbing the ladder surrounded by other people who are aspiring to be in that role. And when you think about the people that you're looking up to, they are probably people who are further up that ladder. And even if we're not talking about just the environment that you're in at work, if we're just talking about family, if you don't come from a family of entrepreneurs or if you don't have examples of that in your community, you don't know what it looks like. And so in, in a way, I think you become hypnotized by the rhythm and the comfort and the predictability of a steady paycheck, as opposed to what can be sometimes a pretty rocky you know, or volatile influx of income, oftentimes through entrepreneurship, not always, depending on your business and your ability to, to grow it. But yeah, I think that's the big thing is, is that people are looking for validation and comfort from people who aren't even able to give it to them. And so, you know, if you bring that problem to someone who's never experienced it, all they're going to do is to project their own fear or amplify the concerns that you have, because you're right, that does sound scary. But if you present that to a group of entrepreneurs who have likely been there, they're just going to literally flip you the link or the article <laughs> or say, here's the book. I don't need it anymore. And then you realize like, oh, this thing that I thought was like insurmountable it was right there on page 12 with this book, or there's a blog about it. And oh my gosh, it's part of a series of five different things, you know, and they start presenting problems that you didn't even know existed that you would likely have, but here's the solution. And then you just keep doing it over and over again. So yeah, you, you just got to surround yourself with the right kind of people so that they can add fire to your, your ambitions and not throw like a blanket over it. Yeah, I'll just add to that, that you're absolutely right, because your brain is trained to find things that validate what it already believes. Yes. Like, that's just how brains work. <laughs> and once you learn that, then your you can retrain your brain to find examples that show you that the corporate America life that you are calling comfortable isn't as comfortable as it used to be. The employment unemployment rate is trending towards 20%. So one out of five people who thought they might have been comfortable now aren't anymore. So I absolutely agree that it starts with not to get all like woo-woo and magical thinking, but it absolutely starts with your mindset. Because if you are looking to be validated in your fear and you haven't told your brain, like, I don't want to be validated in my fear. I want to move forward with the thing that I've decided I'm going to do then your brain will keep you stuck. 
I think another thing that's important and which is awesome about this fire community is like just having any kind of safety net or a nest egg. I know, Kirsten, you had mentioned that originally your fire goal was 2021. It might have got kicked down the road a couple of years. But even having, you know, $10,000 saved up, that's such a nice safety net for someone to fall back on to start a new business than someone who has zero or someone who's just in credit card debt. I think that's really important to highlight. And Julian, you'll probably want to tackle this one because it's a nerdy question. But when you are talking about that fine number, is that just like the raw nest egg? I know you have dabbled or I think you sold your one of your real estate investments. Maybe you can enlighten me on that. Is it just the nest egg number or is it kind of some passive income streams mixed in to your fine number as well? No, I don't add or even consider like social security or even business income. I almost to a degree don't even identify with the idea of a fire number because we have other people that are dependent on us financially. And so honestly, it just takes one diagnosis for that number to change. And so for me, I don't find a lot of value in focusing in it for the purposes of crunching numbers and making like investing decisions or, you know, deciding where we're going to place a next lump sum of cash that we want to invest, yes, it's going to help us inform that because we don't want to overload things in a tax deferred account versus a brokerage. But, you know, we throw that number out and God, I would hate for someone to like scrape the internet and see like how inconsistent that number is bound. <laughs> it's bounced, right? It's within like a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> couple hundred See, I don't do the nerdy dollars. stuff. I'm off by like it, a half a million. Maybe. It bounces. It bounces. <laughs> but but I will also say, you know, we have, you know, when you're a business owner and you've got multiple streams that you're growing and you've got momentum, to her point, for some people that that is a rounding error, right? It's not a number that is worthy of really obsessing over. And so yeah, we calculate our number. I think the last time we checked it was like 1.3, 1.5, but you know, I was thinking about it. I was like, if we hit it tomorrow, I don't know that it would change anything. It's not like we're going to stop. Oh, well, you know, I guess we don't have to, you know, rebuild the website. We don't need to reinvest in this platform. We don't need to take this trip or, you know, take advantage of this business opportunity. It, it's a nice to have for sure, but it's not an end goal for us. And not because we're greedy, but just because we we do have bigger and wider aspirations. And we've not spoken a lot about social activism, but that is a big part of our lives as well. And so money does help to solve some problems. The more of it you have, the more problems you can help to solve. And so as much as I would love to just kick back on a, a beach and drink pina coladas, I don't, she knows this. I literally couldn't do it. I'm like, in, there are vacations that I'm just really bad at going at, depending on what's going on in the world. Cause I'm, I care so much. Oh God. It's true. <laughs> it's true. She knows this. I'm not even kidding. Like I just get so wrapped up in things. And I get, I can't even enjoy myself because all I'm thinking about is like suffering. I need to reread my book on Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to the Phi number, Julian likes this metaphor of a full tank of gas and you're hitting gonna, your you're number. You're going to butcher it. <laughs> yeah, okay. I am going to butcher it, but I feel like the listeners will hang in there. Basically, it's it's this idea that for many people in the FI community, we have this attachment of the FI number, meaning we can now do something, whether that's quit your job or say online that you've hit FI or whatever, like there's this action attached to the number and we've detached an action from it in the same way that you detach driving from having a full tank of gas. You don't need a full tank of gas to get in your car and go somewhere. You can go pretty far on a quarter tank or even a half a tank or, you know, if you're like me, you can go with that gas light on for like 35 <laughs> miles. Like you, you can go somewhere, maybe not far. 
And so for us, it's a gauge. And when we hit it, it'll be a nice to have to say, oh my gosh, now we could live forever and never have to work again if we don't want to. But it's not attached to any action in our life that's going to change something. So looking at FI without really focusing on an FI number is definitely a different way of looking at things. I mean, it's it's different than the way a lot of people approach it. And I know when you're trying to get a message across to people, you know, just different things resonate with people differently. And you got to find a lot of times you got to meet people where they are. And so I'm curious, Julian or Kirsten, when you're developing this these messages for the black community, is there anything that you're having to do differently, you feel like, to resonate with them than maybe the broader FI community is with their messaging? Damn, you guys are good. Yeah, these are great questions. Yeah, I can definitely say for one of the things that we do is we talk about the path to FI in a non-linear way. And so a lot of the methodologies, just in personal finance in general, are very like step focused. First you do this, and then once that's done, then you can do this. And then when that's done, that's when you can move on to this thing. And for Black people specifically, like things aren't that predictable. Like we just don't live in that predictable world where we can control so many variables where I only do one thing at a time and then I have to do the next thing at a time or I experience all of this growth and there's no emergency or the only emergency that happens is under a thousand dollars and of course that only happens once a year like these are just not real life scenarios and so if you try to piece together our journey you'll see that it's very hard to either put it in like a particular step or even a chronological order, or even some tidy little framework, because at the same time as we were paying down debt, we were also acquiring a rental property. Or at the same time as we were changing jobs and having babies, a baby, we were also buying a new home. And so those things are typically done separately in a lot of the personal finance advice. But for us, we, we talk about them together because that's, that's real life for us. I want to add something to that. And so I read this book. It's called The Real Pepsi Challenge, the inspirational story of breaking the color barrier in American business. This is actually a book about marketing, and it is an ode to a team of marketers who helped to make Pepsi-Cola the company that it is in its early years. And one of the ways that they did that is by, I'm going to bring this back to marketing, focusing on targeted communities. And one of the insights, I can't remember the guy's name. I should know this but I don't remember his name, but one of the really famous quotes that he has is that black people are not white people with darker skin. And what he means by that is that you cannot take the same message communicated to people who have different experiences and different motivations and expect the same result. And so when you think about now what all of these companies seem to have known, back then, companies didn't do that. They focused on the benefits of the, of the product And here it is. It doesn't matter what you look like. But today, if you think about that, you would say that that's absolutely ridiculous. You wouldn't sell something to a mother with three children as you would to a mother uh, or a father with no kids. They're two completely... (laughs) A father with no kids? (laughs) Uh, A guy with no kids. But my point is, while that is ridiculous, what I just said, the point is, we understand... I've been Black my whole life. And so I've got 40 years of experience in understanding and studying both Black history and the times that I'm in. And what I know for a fact is that our motivations to pursue financial independence are completely different. The things that will trigger you, you hear people talk about their financial journey. They talk about maybe a day that they had or a struggle that they had. Our days and our struggles are different. 
And so if you want to inspire people, you need to use their language. You need to, in some cases, sound like them, look like them, go to where they are and season your message in a way that resonates deeply with them. And so that's what we try to do is to make our messages so deeply personal that they feel like I'm talking about them. The second thing is we all know that talking about money is taboo. The people within the FIRE community or even just in the broader personal finance, it's not a taboo at all. But I think we can agree that we're the minority, right? The va- which means the vast majority of people in the world don't like talking about money. And so for us, the insight is a matter of saying, well, we don't have to convince the people that are already in this community or even on the outskirts of that community. They'll be fine. But who's talking to the people who really hate talking about money? How do you talk about money without talking about money? How do you respect the taboo instead of forcing an uncomfortable conversation or dialogue onto someone? And so I think that's one of the things that have made our blog reach people because we're talking to people who just haven't really been spoken to, who otherwise would not have listened to a podcast or read a blog. It's like we found them. We went to them as opposed to like focusing on, well, this is where the conversation is happening. And therefore, let's figure out a way to carve out a message within that. We literally turned that on his head and started focusing on people who were just not being spoken to. Well, Julian, got to say that was another fantastic transition into one of the last things I want to talk about before we get into the final few questions here. And it's about books. The book you just brought out for people who can't see you, you just went to your bookshelf and grabbed that, what is it called? The Pepsi Challenge book? (laughs) The Real Pepsi Challenge is by Stephanie Caporell, who apparently worked for the Wall Street Journal. This is an old, old book. I found this at a bookstore somewhere. Where were we? I don't know. Well, regardless of the age of the book, I know the book that is not so old that is going to be coming on the horizon very soon. And could you guys talk about how your book deal unfolded, the messaging you want to get across? I don't know how many beans you can spill, but spill as many as you can. How it unfolded. So out of respect for other writers and aspiring writers, let me say it was a dream come true, a literal dream come true. Did we have aspirations to write a book? Yes, but not in 2020. It was something that we thought we would do after we'd done several other things. But one day we got an email that changed everything. And so we said, okay, wow. You know, when you get that kind of email, you respond. And, but I mean, it wasn't like, here's a bunch of money, write a book. It was like, (laughs) hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? We were like, yeah, let's talk more. And so they've been really patient with us. We've been working with an agent. We worked with a writing coach. We spent months trying to figure out what we wanted our message to be. The iteration that we ultimately landed on was probably the 13th version Mm -hmm. of what we landed on. And actually, you could argue there was a 13.1 because (laughs) literally at the day of like final negotiations, Someone swooped in and said, yeah, but what about this? Which truly changed the spirit of the original book. And so what the book is about is is part financial love story, which is what we are. It's it's part financial love story. It's part financial love story. 
It's about two people who overcame their differences to find common ground and pursue a life that they want. It's the story of our life. It is part financial inspiration. It is part open invitation to the Black community to come to the FIRE movement, because I truly believe that by embracing the principles, it would allow us to achieve a degree of economic freedom that has been evasive to us at large for hundreds of years. But it's also a book, I think, for couples, people, because, you know, the reality was, and this was the challenge that we got from the team at Penguin Random House was, you know, tell me about the people who read your book. And, and you know, they helped us realize that, you know what, actually the number one question we get from people, we may not enjoy the question very much. It's like, how do I get my partner on board? How do I get her to understand? How do I get him to understand? And so we think that by sharing how we overcame our differences to finally get on the same page and to realign and redesign our lives, we think that we can help other people overcome those same obstacles and in the process, get them to realize that the lifestyle that we're living and getting ready to live is one that they can also achieve. Well, Julian Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciated it. It's so much awesome information and definitely a different viewpoint than, you know, I know that me and Cody can bring. And I got to take a quick second to give a shout out to a coworker of mine, Ramona, who is also, she's a, a black female engineer who lives in Atlanta. And she's been actually pairing with me to give presentations at our corporate job about financial independence. Uh, that's something we've been doing, trying to sneak it in there, start up some groups at work. So I got to give her a shout out. But if folks like Ramona and anyone listening wants to get more information about your guys' story, maybe the book that's coming out, just anything about you guys, where is a good place for them to do so? Shout out to Ramona, fellow AT alien. We are at richandregular.com is our blog. And then we have all the social medias. So we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube all at Rich and Regular. Awesome. All right. And you guys might have a combined answer or maybe you have two separate answers. We'll take it either way. But what is your number one tip for those on the path to financial independence? Ladies first. Oh, I thought we were doing a combined answer. No, that's your way of stealing my answers. Ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then I'm going to give my advice specifically to women. And that's going to be to not be afraid of the discomfort all of the data suggests that, uh, very similar to the racial wealth gap, men and women have very different sentiments about money. And the majority of women, I think it's upwards of 75 to 90% of women, feel very uncomfortable with the subject of money. They look at their money and they feel frustrated. It's very hard for them to feel hopeful about the future. And that just won't do. And so I'm encouraging all women that if you feel that, even if in listening to my story, that you feel uncomfortable in certain parts of this conversation where we've talked about money and been very forward about calling ourselves rich, sit with it for a minute and then move past it. Because it's so important to get past that to see the possibilities that are associated with financial independence. That's a great answer. Thanks. My number one tip for people who are thinking about pursuing financial independence is to start being honest with yourself. I think we, we now live in a world where it's just so comfortable to like avoid or wiggle out of the truth. But if you spend your days and your nights and your weekends hating your job, it's time to just really be honest about what you're doing and the trajectory that you're on. 
and the impact that it's having on your life outside of the hours that you've devoted to work, especially if you're in a relationship or if you have children, you know, they see it too. Your kids are seeing that you hate your job. Your partner is seeing that you hate your job. And so for me, I think just be honest. And I'm not certainly telling everyone to just quit, but I do think it's important to be at least upfront about how you feel and start developing a plan based on that motivation to improve your life. All righty, guys. Well, we've almost got you out of here, but there is one last question. It's a question that I don't prepare for. Cody's not prepared for. You could tell by the way we're looking at each other like, ah, who's going to ask this? That we're not prepared. It's the wild card question. So while there's no way you could be really prepared, are you guys ready? We rest. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so realistically, this question may be more for more pointed towards Julian, but today we've talked about racial differences, we've talked about gender differences, and now I'd kind of like to talk about something that I've experienced myself, which is these geographical differences. So I grew up in the South, and now I live up north in Boston. Julian, you talk about growing up in Brooklyn, and now you guys live in Atlanta. And I'm even going to give you a little bit of an easy out by giving you two options, but now that you're in the South, do you ever look around at something and say man, this is, you guys are crazy. This is messed up. Or is there anything you look at and say, man, the South has got something figured out the North's missing out on? Um, more often than not, I say the South has something figured out that the North is missing out on. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm saying that as, as someone that is hardcore from Brooklyn. I almost didn't do this because I know y'all are from Boston, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Yankee man. But there's something to the outdoors that does something to your spirit, you know, and you just don't have nearly as many opportunities to connect with nature when you live in really densely populated urban environments. And obviously you can, you know, take trips to get away and go to those things, but there's nothing like being surrounded by it. It makes it a lot easier to cope and heal with the stresses of life. Whereas, especially in New York, it's it's almost impossible to escape it. And so you're just constantly in this intense air clanging environment. And I just think it has, it sort of chips away at the spirit uh, bit by bit. And so, yeah, I've, I've now spent more time in the South than I have in New York. And so I am, I'm more of a peach today than a rotten apple. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Julian, Kirsten, it's been an absolute pleasure having you guys on. Like we were talking about before we started recording here, I've been trying to get you on here for I think over a year at this point, just because your message is so awesome. You have so many good things to say in such a nice, concise way to kind of bring people into your world that may not necessarily resonate with some of the things that you're preaching or some of the things that you've been through. So thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your message with our audience. Thanks for having us. This is a really fun conversation. You guys are great. You're giving hot ones a run for their money. Gotta say, Justin, this was such a timely episode, and it was awesome that we recorded this within the last two weeks. I know we had to kind of do a rush release, but I think that there could not be a better time to release this type of content, get this out into the world, and start to actually think about these things that are affecting so many Americans and probably a lot of Show listeners in our community. What'd you think about it? Yeah, I love this episode, and I mean, you know, we always try to bring on experts of different things that most of the time mean you are not experts on, and there could not be a better example of this. Like you said in the intro, you know, me and you, we're two young white guys who are living up in the Northeast now. I mean, we're from, we have different backgrounds, but we still are not experts in this subject matter. 
And so I love that we have the access to Julian and Kirsten more than anything to be able to just ask them questions we want to ask and be able to get that out there to help the community, you know, learn some things. And I guess going along that same topic, one of the things that really jumped out to me in the episode was when Julian said, you know, like black people aren't just white people with darker skin, which is a lot of the times, you know, I've probably fell into that same trap of trying to just frame things that way. It's like, no, you have a completely different upbringing, completely different culture. There's just so many more things to unpack in it that you can't just dumb it down to just say, oh, well, you know, it's we're just the same. There are just some underlying differences there from a societal perspective that is not just as simple as thinking through the lens of like your own life experiences if you were darker. Like there's just so much more to it. And they really helped us unpack that. Another thing that was pretty startling was some of the figures that Julian was throwing out. And I kind of remembered back from that Camp 5 presentation, but I think it was in Boston, actually, they did the study where the average black family in Boston, Massachusetts had a net worth of $8. And I know all of us on personal finance Twitter were touting our net worths. And when it goes up with the market, like we're chanting and saying, Hoo-ah, and I'm there too. Like I love when I see my net worth go up and I love making contributions in my Roth IRA. But there are people who they just don't get this content. They don't get this personal finance education. It's not a problem that me or Justin could solve by ourselves. It's not a problem that one or two people can solve. But people need to be throwing all of their effort at this. The black community shouldn't be suffering more than the white community who's been privileged generation over generation and having this generational wealth. And they kind of understand money because their parents kind of understand money. But from Julian and Kirsten's perspective, like black families aren't getting the same level of education because they did, they weren't taught it themselves. They're still trying to pull themselves up from their bootstraps out of generational poverty and facing a lot of issues that people like Justin and myself don't have to face every single day. Yeah, Karina, I think this is like a perfect time to make a plug for a book, actually, that someone referenced to me before on Twitter to kind of help go through some of these things. If you're unsure of like what people are talking about when it's like this kind of systemic nature of how things have ended up this way. It's a book called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, and it just steps you through the entire history of the United States and some of the actual laws that were put into place that have had to led to a lot of this. So it's not it, so it hasn't just been, you know, people with their own emotions. There have actually been a lot of tangible things that have taken place that have led to a lot of this. But, you know, on this show, we're always looking for that actionable angle. We're always looking for, okay, we see the problem. We're wrapping our heads around it. Now, what do we do? And Kirsten suggests that anything you can go out there and buy in a big box store, look for a business that's owned by someone from the black community and support them by using your dollar to do the voting. Like, go out there and use your hard-earned money to help them and to help turn this situation around. That's an actionable thing that you can do if you feel like you're out there and you're kind of helpless and you're not sure how you can take action. Maybe you don't have a big platform, but that is one way that every one of us could make a difference. And now it's time for the call to action. So today's call to action comes in three parts. So the first part, Justin, is what you just referenced, and that is go out, support local black entrepreneurs, business owners, anyone who is making a difference. It could be a restaurant, could be a retail store, could be online influencers like Julian and Kirsten. We have a bunch of other awesome episodes featuring people from the black community, like our episodes with Jimmy and Sa'el and Jamila and Tamika. There's a bunch of awesome ones out there. And number two, if you're in a position of power in your company or business, see how you can be more inclusive and welcome diversity into the workplace. It starts with you if you're someone who's a decision maker, who's someone who can add that inclusivity to your business organization. And the last one is speak up. That's why Justin and I are pushing this episode out today. 
because obviously the people who are on the opposite side of this, those are not people we want to be associated with. But also being silent is something that we didn't want to do. We want to speak up. We have this platform. And even if you don't have a platform, speaking up can just let other people know that, hey, this is a serious issue that I'm taking seriously. And your friends in the black community will know that you're supporting them. They'll know that you're the one, you know, going out and supporting these black businesses and that you're the one making an effort to make things inclusive. So those are the three call to action items today, and they are more important than ever. So please go out there, Fi Show community members, and make an impact. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode as much as we did, then please go check out the show notes where we'll link to like the books that were mentioned in any of the discussion that we had at thefyshow.com slash rich and regular. That's thefyshow.com slash rich and regular. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.